Hey there, welcome to Unaborted with Seth Gruber. Thanks for tuning in today. Hey, we have a special episode for you today. I actually had the opportunity of speaking at a live virtual event recently with Pastor Jack Hibbs of Calvary Chapel Chino Hills. And if you don't know who Pastor Jack Hibbs is, he's one of the most pro-life pastors in the country and one of the most vocal and articulate voices calling the church to engage the culture and be salt and light. And particularly that applies to our pre-born neighbors whose slaughter and death has never meant enough to most Christians and pastors to engage politically to protect them and restore personhood to them. So we spoke at this great event called Comeback California. We had Dennis Prager, Charlie Kirk, Liz Wheeler, Larry Elder, Jack Hibbs, and others to equip and engage, equip Christians to engage and inspire them to engage the culture and fight for California, which is going down the drain and has become an increasingly dangerous place for unborn children. So I got to give a 45-minute speech called Equipped to Engage the Case for Life at Comeback California last month at Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills. You can watch all of those talks online, but we wanted to bring you my speech from this event to equip you to engage just weeks out from this election so you know how to vote pro-life. You know how to change the minds of those in your life who are pro-choice and how to engage in a gracious and winsome manner. Listen, if you haven't given the show a rating and review yet, please do so. It really helps us. We're reaching a lot more people with this type of content and helping them rethink their beliefs on abortion or equip them with the tools of thought they need to already articulate and defend their pro-life beliefs. So scroll down, leave us a five-star rating, give us a review, let us know what you think and enjoy Come Back California. Good morning, friends. It is good to be here with you. Thank you so much for tuning in. This event is for you. This is for our state. This is for Christians who love life and liberty and want to fight for it. But you know, sometimes it can be very costly to engage evil and fight for life. And you know who understood that? Far better than anyone in my generation, with the exception of an incredible few, were the men, as Prager said, who hit the sand at Omaha Beach in June of 1944. And if you know your history, friends, you'll know that the first wave of Allied troops to hit the sand sustained at least a 90% casualty rate. And there were a few reasons for that. There was a problem with the tides, and so our troops were not able to get the landing crafts as far into the beach as they had wanted. Secondly, the defenders were far more equipped and ready to engage the Allied troops than the troops had been led to believe. And so when those doors opened on the landing craft, our soldiers were met with firepower they were completely unprepared for. And thirdly, the water was a lot deeper than our troops thought it was. So when they ran out of the landing craft doors and into the water, they sunk 20 feet down where their 100-pound packs drowned them to death before they could even get a shot off. And for those who did survive, they only did so by ditching their 100-pound packs and weapons, swimming to the surface and swimming to the shore, at which point they had to engage an enemy without any weapons. And friends, if you've seen the first 10 minutes of the Saving Private Ryan film, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, friends, this morning, I want to talk to you about your place on that beach. Because many of you feel like the troops that got dropped onto that beach on June 6, 1944. The gate of that landing craft is open, and you feel that you are in a hostile battle turf. And people are firing at you with ideas that are contrary to everything you believe. You're being ridiculed. 
you're under fire and you find yourself without the weapons to engage. Friends, we live in a culture and society today which tells you as pro-lifers to stop imposing your morality on others while pro-aborts impose their morality on the unborn children they dismember and the pro-lifers that they force to fund abortion. You're being told that being pro-life, it's just a Christian position. So stop shoving your religion down other people's throats. Even though pro-lifers make no religious arguments as to why abortion should be made illegal. You're being told that, don't you know, Christian, there's a separation of church and state. So pro-lifers should be prevented from implementing their pro-life views into policy while the left implements their secularly humanistic views into policy with religious fervor. But friends, it gets worse than this. We have major Christian pastors and leaders who should be leading the charge to help abolish abortion, but instead they're creating confusion amongst our troops and sometimes almost quite literally telling the troops to run back to the landing craft and hide. And I'm so disappointed and discouraged to bring you an example of this from this week from a major Christian pastor who ought to be calling the church to get involved politically to protect our preborn neighbors. I'm talking about Pastor Tim Keller from Redeemer Church in New York City, who several days ago on Facebook put out a post telling Christians that we have freedom and liberty of conscience when it comes to politics. So you can just kind of pick whatever party you want. And then in his post, he got to abortion and here is what he said. The Bible tells me that abortion is a sin and great evil, but it doesn't tell me the best way to decrease or end abortion in this country or which policies are most effective. The current political parties offer a potpourri of different positions on these and many, many other topics, most of which the Bible does not speak to directly. This means when it comes to taking political positions, voting, determining alliances, and political involvement, the Christian has liberty of conscience. Keller continues and says, Christians cannot say to other Christians, no Christian can vote for, or every Christian must vote for, unless you can find a biblical command to that effect. So according to Pastor Tim Keller, political parties are all created equal, and Christians have the liberty of conscience to pick them like they do groceries at the store. According to Pastor Tim Keller's reasoning, I guess supporting the Democratic Party of the 1850s was permissible for the Christian because don't you know, we, the Bible doesn't tell us which policies are most effective in ending slavery. I guess, according to Pastor Tim Keller, Christians have liberty of conscience, German Christians to support Hitler and his regime because don't you know, Christians have liberty of conscience politically. Now, if Keller rejects these suggestions as permissible for the Christian, which I'm sure he does, but he is still pro-life, then his own argument is rendered false. Why? Because abortion is wrong for the same reasons that slavery and the Holocaust were wrong. They legally denied rights of personhood to image bearers of God while dehumanizing them in order to justify their mistreatment. In short, Pastor Tim Keller apparently believes that clerical silence or political neutrality in the face of child sacrifice is an acceptable means of evangelism. But it's not, brothers and sisters. And Tim Keller, along with many major Christian leaders and pastors today, have forgotten what William Wilberforce, that great British abolitionist, taught us when he said that a private faith that does not act in the face of oppression is no faith at all. But this type of moral, 
spiritual and political confusion is infecting the church, the very institution predisposed to protect preborn children because we believe human beings are created in the image of God. And friends, I can testify to this confusion in the church. You see, I speak to thousands of students and adults every year throughout the country in Protestant and Catholic high schools, secular and religious colleges, churches, and youth groups. And unfortunately, the moral fog that our Christian leaders are living in spans across generational gaps. And it is infecting the next generation who will be the posterity of our country and will take the reins of this Republic to determine whether abortion remains part of a natural right or not. So friends, while our politics seems to be falling apart and the church seems to be laying down her duties and her arms, we cannot. Surrender is not an option for the Christian. So friends, I need you to engage for life. We are going to gear you up. We are going to equip you with the tools to hit that beach right now so that you are equipped to engage in the battle for life. And there's three things that we need to do as Christians to equip ourselves to engage so that we can make a meaningful difference in this country on behalf of our preborn neighbors. To engage the culture for life, Christians must bring moral, spiritual, and political clarity to the issue of abortion. And do you know why this is important? Because abortion is here to stay as long as millions of Christians remain in a moral and spiritual and political fog on abortion. As long as large swaths of Christians in America remain politically and morally apathetic to the genocide of abortion, babies will continue to be poisoned, dismembered, and starved to death. It's time to engage. It's time to, as one of our speakers will tell you, get off the bench. So how do we bring clarity to this issue? Well, pro-lifers bring moral clarity to the issue of abortion by making our case for life. Now, our opponents tell us what? Abortion is a deeply complex moral issue, very complex. So we need to leave it to women's personal conscience to make their own decisions. However, friends, there's only one question that we really need to answer to bring moral clarity to an issue that too many of our brothers and sisters in Christ believe is very complex. Here's what that question is. Let me tell you a brief anecdote and I want you to expand your imagination with me for a second and imagine the following. You're standing at your kitchen sink cleaning dishes one evening because uh, God hasn't blessed you with the dishwasher. And uh, as you're standing there cleaning your dishes, your three-year-old toddler walks up behind you. Okay. Now your back is turned and you hear your three-year-old toddler say, uh, mommy or daddy, um, can I kill this? Now, some of you have heard that question from your toddlers every day. Um, but since your back is turned, what would be the first question out of your mouth in response to your toddler's question, can I kill this? My guess is, is it would be, what is it? <laughs> what is it? Because if you turn around and he's holding a cockroach, you might say, yeah, here, here, Timmy, here's a hammer. Don't tell mom, have fun. But if he's holding the neighbor kitty, I'm guessing you would have a different reply, unless you're a vindictive cat hater, in which case no judgment. But if you turned around and he was holding his little sister by the throat, friend, you need counseling. So you couldn't answer the question, can I kill this until you answered the question, what is it? Friends, similarly on the issue of abortion, we can't honestly answer the question, can we kill the unborn until we answer what question? What is the unborn? As Greg Kokel, a Christian apologist and friend of this church once said, if the unborn is not human, then no justification for abortion is necessary. Meaning if it's not a human, then get as many abortions as you'd like. Nobody cares. But then he said, 
However, if the unborn are human, no justification for abortion is adequate. You see, you can't offer a moral justification to defend the killing of a human being if it's a human. So the entire abortion debate hinges on this one question. What is the unborn? And guess what? Pro-lifers have a very good answer to this question. And we've been answering it for literally decades. Pro-life advocates answer the question, what is the unborn? And we make our case for life by appealing to science and philosophy. Science answers the question of what is it? What kind of entity is this? And philosophy answers the question of rights, right? Of human value. Is this thing in the womb equally valuable with the same rights as born people? And once you understand the case for life, friends, you can make it in a minute or less. So we're going to give you that case for life and equip you with these tools right now, and then show you how you can summarize your pro-life apologetic defense in less than a minute. So what is the unborn? Well, let's turn to the science of embryology. What's that? Well, it's the biology of human beings before they're born. It's the study of the embryo, the study of prenatal human life. And we've known what the science of embryology teaches us for literally decades. This is what it teaches us. From the earliest stages of development, that is the moment of conception, the unborn child is a distinct, living, and whole human being. Okay, what do those terms mean? Well, distinct means unique, right? Distinct means that you're separate. Distinct means that you will never exist again. There is only one of you. So what does that mean as it's applied to the issue of abortion? Well, if the unborn child is distinct, guess what? That means that the body in her body is not her body. <laughs> and this makes sense because otherwise we'd be forced to admit that pregnant women have 20 fingers and 20 toes, two brains, two hearts, two different blood types potentially, two different DNA codes existing simultaneously. Oh, and what happens if pregnant women are pregnant with um, unborn boys? Now, pregnant women have male genitalia. Now, none of this makes sense. Why? Because the unborn child is distinct. This is what the science teaches us. Secondly, it teaches us that the unborn child is living. This is simple. Dead things don't grow. And the unborn child meets all of the requirements for a living thing that you learned in high school biology. Furthermore, pregnant women do not will their unborn children to grow. Unborn children develop themselves from within, independent of the wishes of their parents. So they're living. And thirdly, the science of embryology teaches us that the unborn child is whole. Okay, not a hole in the ground, W-H-O-L-E. What does it mean to be a whole human being? Sometimes we confuse development or level of development with wholeness. Oh, this is a whole human being. They're an adult. They have all these functions and abilities and capacities. That's an incorrect assumption. A whole human being is simply a human being that has everything they need to realize their full growth and development as a participating member of the human species. So from the moment of conception, that's a human being. And that unborn child already has everything they need to realize their full growth and development as a participating member of the human species. Here's what I mean by this. I'm 29 and I'm not 40. However, my wife recently found out that men don't reach their mental peak until their 40s. And she was strangely very encouraged by this. I'm not sure what to make of that. So there are aspects of my development that I have not realized yet. Does that mean that 29-year-old me is not a whole human being now? No. So similarly, even though the unborn child hasn't realized certain levels of development that they will eventually, it doesn't mean that they're not a whole human being now. That's what the science of embryology teaches us, folks. That's it. What is the unborn? They're a distinct, living, and whole human being from the moment of conception. Secondly, we bring moral clarity to the issue of abortion by answering the question, what is the unborn, from philosophy. Why is this important? Because our opponents often admit Okay, pro-lifer, the unborn is biologically human. I, I can't refute that because I'll look just scientifically ignorant. Okay, it's a human, but it's not a person. Uh, 
didn't the Democratic Party used to say that about black people? They were humans, but not persons. Okay, uh, we're not supposed to talk about that. Sorry. So it's a human, but not a person. That's the claim of the pro-choice movement. So we have to offer a philosophical defense of the equal value of the unborn child as a bearer of rights, just like us as born people. So here's our philosophical case for the equal value of the unborn child. There is no meaningful or value-giving difference between the embryonic human being that you once were and the adult that you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Let me say it in even simpler terms. There's no value-giving difference between you, the unborn human, and you, the born human, that makes it okay to kill you, the unborn human. Does that make sense? Now, does that mean there's no differences between unborn people and born people? No, of course not. Of course there are differences. The claim of the pro-lifer is that none of those differences are relevant to the moral worth of the unborn child. But yes, there are differences between fetuses and teenagers. And we're going to go through those differences because the pro-choicer at this point will use the differences between unborn people and born people and say, because of those differences, we can kill unborn children. So what are those differences? Well, they're summarized in the acronym SLED, S-L-E-D. This is a very difficult concept for us in Southern California where we can't even spell the word snow, uh, but work with me. So SLED stands for size, level of development, environment or location, and degree of dependency. These are the only four differences between unborn humans and born humans. Let's go through them since these are the differences our pro-abortion Americans use to justify abortion. The first is size. Yes, it's true, the unborn child is smaller than the newborn child. Just like newborn children are smaller than toddlers and toddlers are smaller than teenagers. Just like men are generally larger than women, but that doesn't mean that they're more valuable. Just like me at six foot three, I'm generally larger than most of the audiences I speak to. Does that mean I'm more of a person? No. So size is not relevant to moral worth or personhood. What, what the only thing we have in common is our human nature. Size is irrelevant to our worth. Secondly, level of development. Yes, it's true, the unborn child is less developed than the newborn child. Just like newborn children are less developed than toddlers and toddlers are less developed than teenagers, just like your parents are more developed than you and your children are less developed than you. Question, does that mean grandparents have more value than their grandchildren? Does that mean that grandparents can kill their grandchildren because grandparents are more developed? No, of course not. Well, the unborn child is a human being at a very early stage in their physical development. That doesn't mean you can kill them. The third difference between unborn people and born people is environment, all right, or location. So pro-choicers say, well, women have the right to kill their unborn child through all nine months of pregnancy for any reason or no reason at all because it's in the womb, because it's located six inches away in a womb that was designed to hold them and that we all used to be in, but we weren't aborted because our mothers chose life. So because that child is in the womb, they can be killed through all nine months of pregnancy. But as Frank Beckwith says, where one is has no bearing on who one is. Most of you watching are hundreds of miles away from me right now. You're in a different location. Does that mean I can kill you? Of course not, because where one is has no bearing on who one is. And by the way, friends, what a tragedy it is. What a tragedy that the location that was created to be the most safe environment for a human being has become the most dangerous. You are more likely of being murdered as a human in a womb than you are residing or living in any dangerous city or crime-ridden slum. And it was created to be the environment that you were protected in and valued. This is why the psalmist says, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. My frame was not hidden from you when I was woven together in the dark of the earth. 
and the sacred space of the womb, the space in which our savior entered human history has become the most dangerous place for human beings to find themselves in America in 2020. So location or environment is the third difference between unborn people and born people. And it's used by pro-abortion advocates to say we can kill them because they're in the womb. The fourth difference is dependency or degree of dependency. This means how dependent you are, okay, on someone or something else for your life. Is the unborn child dependent on the mother? Of course. And in the first trimester and early second trimester, that unborn child cannot survive apart from their dependency on their mother. But guess what? It is in virtue of being an unborn human being to be dependent on your mother. Our rights don't come from how dependent we are. Our rights come from our human nature, which began at the moment of conception. And if we accept the premises of our opponents that we can kill unborn children because they're dependent on their mother, question, can we kill born people who are dependent on heart pacemakers, kidney machines, insulin, life support, or a caretaker. They're dependent on someone or something else without which they cannot continue to live. Anyone want to get on board with rounding up and killing those people? Of course not. Because our rights and our value do not come from how dependent we are. They come from our human nature. These are the four differences between unborn people and born people. But notice, the unborn child differs from us in the same ways that we differ from one another. So the arguments used to justify the taking of unborn human life work equally well to justify killing people outside the womb. In short, the argument for abortion cannot be confined to the womb. The right to kill unborn human beings cannot be confined to the womb. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this evergreen episode and speech that I gave at the Comeback California event at Calvary Chapel Chino Hills called Equip to Engage, Making the Case for Life. And if this is helpful, and if you're writing down notes, and these are good quivers, these are good uh, arrows in your quiver rather, for you to defend life, then consider that this is the type of content I take around schools all around the country, secular universities, religious universities, Protestant Catholic high schools, and we want to begin taking this content into an interactive model in the public square on university campuses at in busy cities or busy beaches where we just engage people in conversations on abortion because most people who are pro-choice can't really offer an adequate defense as to why. As Socrates once said, the unexamined life is not one worth living. And most people do live an unexamined life on the issue of abortion. They can't actually provide reasons for why they believe what they believe. So if you want to consider becoming a patron of this show to help us expand the reach of the show, the number of episodes that we do, and the type of content we create to change minds, change hearts, and save lives, then please consider doing so. You can go to patreon.com forward slash unaborted. That's patreon.com forward slash unaborted. Check out our, our tiers and our perks that you'll get access to if you support the show and continue to enjoy this special episode. So let's make our case for life in less than a minute. According to the science of embryology, pro-life advocates argue that the unborn child is a distinct, living, and whole human being. This is plain, undisputed scientific fact. Philosophically, we argue that there's no value-giving difference between the embryo you used to be and the adult that you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Differences in size, level of development, environment, and dependency are not good reasons for saying that you had no right to life in the womb. Oh, but you do now that you've been born. There it is. 
restoring moral clarity to the issue of abortion. Notice we've made a case for life that stands outside of citing Bible verses because we want to persuade our fellow Americans who don't hold a Christian worldview that abortion is wrong. But look, we're communicating biblical truth nonetheless. So if you wanna be equipped to engage Christian and defend life, we and you have to restore moral clarity to the issue of abortion. And that is how we do it. Secondly, we have to bring spiritual clarity to the issue of abortion. And the example of Pastor Tim Keller, unfortunately, stands as an example of the type of spiritual clarity that is infecting the church on the issue of abortion. Our progressive brothers and sisters insist that because the Bible doesn't condemn abortion, that therefore it has no position on it. Because the Bible doesn't condemn abortions, Christians should neither. Their statement goes something like this. Christians should speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent. So because the Bible doesn't say thou shalt not abort, our progressive brothers and sisters insist that either the Bible is neutral on the question of abortion or worse yet, it condones it. But how does it follow that whatever the Bible doesn't condemn, it condones? Did you know there's lots of issues the Bible doesn't condemn, but we as Christians can reach biblically informed positions on those issues? Did you know the Bible does not condemn forced female circumcision, for example? The Bible doesn't condemn the lynching of homosexuals. The Bible doesn't condemn designer babies or human cloning. Can we not reach biblically informed positions on those issues because the Bible's silent? No. And even our progressive brothers and sisters would probably insist, well, but Seth, the Bible provides the theological principles and foundation necessary based on the image of God and God's laws to reach truly biblically informed positions on those issues. Exactly. And the same is true with the issue of abortion. God, through his word, has given us all that we need to develop spiritual clarity on abortion. And friends, this is so important because if you do not have spiritual clarity on abortion as a Christian, you will be apathetic. And you will not feel a responsibility to personally engage to end abortion. So what can we learn from the Bible? What principles can we draw out to develop spiritual clarity for ourselves and our brothers and sisters? Well, let's turn to the beginning of the human story, shall we? In Genesis, God says he creates human beings in his image, in his likeness, right? Male and female, he created them in the image of God. This is the concept of the Imago Dei, right? What does that mean? It means that after God created everything, after he breathed out stars, after he laughed animals into existence, after he dropped oceans and said, it is good. He made you as the peak and pinnacle of his creation and gave you dominance and dominion over the creation he had made to be stewards of. And he said, you look like me. It means you bear the image of the creator of the universe. That's what the Imago Dei means. And so because human beings bear this image of God, what does the Bible teach? The Bible forbids the shedding of innocent blood because those are image bearers. They're not just animals. They're not just plants. They're human beings. The Bible takes the shedding of innocent blood, friends, very, very seriously. Proverbs says that God hates hands that shed innocent blood. Okay, so every human being is created in the image of God. And what did we just learn from science? That unborn children are human beings. So unborn children bear the image of God. And this is why the prenatal John the Baptist leaps in the womb when Mary walks into the room pregnant with the creator of the universe. That's an image bearer of God. So unborn children are image bearers of God. What else can we learn from scripture to develop spiritual clarity on the issue of abortion? Well, what are God's greatest commandments? Well, Jesus actually simplified it for us, didn't he? He said in the New Testament, all the law and the prophets hang on to 
And what were they? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. So the question for our progressive brothers and sisters who insist that we should be silent on abortion because the Bible has nothing to say on abortion is this. Is the unborn our neighbor? And friends, this was the question that the lawyer asked Jesus in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Do you remember? He asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he tells Jesus, I know, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he desiring to justify himself said, and who is my neighbor? Do you think the lawyer didn't know who his neighbors were? He just recited the two top commandments to Jesus. He knew the law and the prophets, desiring to justify himself. He was trying to create a category of neighbor and non-neighbor so he could shirk himself of the responsibility of loving those neighbors that he really doesn't want to treat like neighbors. Those neighbors that are inconvenient and difficult to love. Friends, no other class of human beings is directed with the question, are they our neighbor more than unborn children? Are they really though? Are they really our neighbors? The, question, the answer is yes. Just like the lawyer knew that every human being was our neighbor, Christians know that every human being is our neighbor and that includes our unborn neighbors. So friends, the prohibitions in scripture against the shedding of innocent blood would apply equally to the unborn. The Bible doesn't have to say thou shalt not abort for us to know that abortion is wrong. It tells us that human beings are created in the image of God to not shed innocent blood and to love your neighbor. That is all we need from the Bible to develop spiritual clarity on the issue of abortion. But how friends are we to love a neighbor that our country says it is legal to kill and whose deaths you're forced to fund. How do we love that kind of neighbor? Well, we seek to stop the slaughter. We seek to make it illegal to kill unborn image bearers. And we use the political tools in this constitutional republic that people bled to ensure we had to restore personhood and legal protections to our preborn neighbors. So Christian, if you want to be equipped to engage in the battle for life, you need to develop moral and spiritual clarity on the issue of abortion for yourself, for our brothers and sisters, and for the sake of our unborn neighbors. So thirdly, we need to develop political clarity. And if we develop moral and spiritual clarity on this issue, political clarity ought to follow in turn. The other side, friends, has no qualms about being perceived as partisan through their work to attack the unborn and those who seek to protect them. So friends, it's high time for us as Christians to abandon our concern with being perceived as partisan in order to engage in the political work necessary to protect unborn image bearers from dismemberment. Christians need to abandon this assumption and lie that abortion is a political issue. It is a moral and spiritual issue with political ramifications and realities. And we need to engage in that political work to restore personhood to the preborn, just like Christians had to do that in the 1850s and 60s to use those political tools necessary to restore personhood and a right to life, liberty, and property to our African-American brothers and sisters. But our opponents and some who claim to be our allies and pay lip service to the pro-life movement seek to neutralize the political action of pro-lifers and create political confusion in the church. And there's two ways they seek to do this. 
to neutralize political action of Christians and pro-lifers and create political confusion. The first way is by telling you as pro-lifers, and you're ready, you, you know this one, you're not really pro-life unless you support open borders, universal health care, universal basic income, you oppose war, you oppose police brutality, you're out there marching, calling America systemically racist. Yeah, so if you do all those things, you're really pro-life. It's ridiculous. It's scandalous. No other movement that has a narrowly minded focus towards solving one injustice is levied with criticisms that they're not really for or against the things that they are unless they adopt responsibility for a whole other cornucopia of societal ills. And too many pro-lifers out of a desire to avoid accusations of hypocrisy toward the suffering of others will accept this premise that we have to expand the pro-life vision to somehow solve all injustices in order to be truly pro-life. Now, does this mean that Christians in their personal life don't have a responsibility to love all neighbors? No, of course not. In our personal lives, we have a broad and inclusive responsibility and ethic to love all neighbors, but it doesn't follow that the operational objectives of the pro-life movement must be diverted to address other issues. Most of those issues have their own movements and organizations better funded than the pro-life organizations. So how does it follow that because the pro-life movement opposes intentionally killing innocent human beings in the womb and seeks to protect them through legislation, that we must also adopt responsibility for a whole cornucopia of other societal ills. For example, was Oscar Schindler not really anti-Holocaust because he only focused his energy and time on saving Jews? I guess so. Is the American Cancer Society not really anti-cancer because they only seek to solve one form of disease and not many? I guess so. And were abolitionists not really anti-slavery because they only sought to abolish one form of evil? I guess so. You see how no other movement gets these accusations except the pro-life movement. So you, Christian, can be faithful as a pro-lifer by merely doing two things, living and acting as if abortion is wrong. That is all that is required to be truly pro-life. But that accusation is the first way our opponents seek to neutralize your political action. The second is they tell you, well, pro-lifers shouldn't be single-issue voters, don't you know? You need to weigh all of the issues on the same moral playing field so you see, tearing the arms off of preborn children is morally equivalent to universal health care. You need to balance all life issues equally when you go to the polls. And my only question for our brothers and sisters who levy that accusation at us is, would you say the same thing about slavery? Would you insist that Republican abolitionists in the 1850s needed to actually vote for the Democratic Party? Because even though they were the party of slavery, you know, shh, they were addressing other life issues that were very important. And you needed to weigh those as equal with legalized slavery and whipping of blacks when you go to the polls. Ridiculous. Abortion is not the only issue of our day, granted. Any more than slavery was the only issue of the day in the 1850s or killing Jews was the only issue of the day in the 1940s. But weren't they both the dominant issues of their day? While many issues are important, they do not all carry the same moral weight. So this selective application of the single issue voting critique reveals that our critics and some pro-lifers who have adopted this belief either don't believe the unborn to be fully human or if they do believe the unborn is fully human, they don't think that the genocide of unborn children is serious enough to justify a single issue vote. But it is, because life is the most fundamental right. And if we don't get that right right, we won't get any other rights right. As long as our country continues to deny the natural right to life to an entire class of human beings, friends, our own rights will constantly be endangered by modern jurists and a ruling class whose jurisprudence is completely foreign to that first generation of judges. By ignoring the natural right to life that all human beings have, 
we should not be surprised when our government ignores every other right that flows from that first and most important of all rights. Friends, we cannot be caught sleeping for our opponents are animated and engaged in the political battle to attack the preborn and those who seek to protect them. And what are the current political realities that we face and our preborn neighbors face? Well, I'll tell you, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have been very, very clear with what they will do with political power. That will include, friends, codifying Roe v. Wade into federal law, instituting pre-clearance guidelines for pro-life states who want to pass pro-life laws that Kamala Harris has to go, okay, I'll let you do that before they can do it. They will add four more Supreme Court justices to the court, which will have the jurisprudence of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who we'll get to in a second. They will abolish the filibuster so those pesky pro-life Republicans can't do anything from stopping them to pass extreme abortion laws. They will abolish the Hyde Amendment, which keeps taxpayer dollars from funding abortion through Medicaid reimbursements and has been responsible for saving over two million babies. And they will increase the tax funding to Planned Parenthood by the millions. What are the consequences of that? Millions and millions and millions of more slaughtered babies and wounded women and a constitutional Republican shambles by a government that refuses to re protect that first and most important of all rights. Yesterday, we found out that Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away to cancer at the age of 87. The only thing that is tragic about that for Christians is that we do not know if she met her savior and repented before entering into eternity, before meeting the creator of the universe. And we all pray that she did and that she repented because friends, she was the most radical pro-abortion Supreme Court justice since at least Justice Blackman who authored the Roe versus Wade decision. It is time to get involved. It is time to get off the bench and ensure that we do not continue to be a country permanently half slave and half free as Abraham Lincoln once said as half of our countrymen, unborn children are denied their first and most important of all rights. And in California, our governor last year passed SB 24, which is going to put the abortion pill in California four-year state universities in the health center on campus. So 19-year-olds can do that. And he did that, avoiding the recommendations of our former governor, Jerry Brown, who said, this is too radical, don't do it, Newsom. And he did it. Anyways, unsurprisingly, friends, when you defend killing children in the womb, you will have no problem targeting them outside the womb. And so Senate Bill 145 that you're familiar with that just passes reduces the penalties of some adults who have consensual sex with minors as young as 14 years old. Earlier this month, Santa Barbara Unified School District unanimously approved the Health Connected Teen Talk. Doesn't that sound so good? This is how good the left is at euphemisms because it's a curriculum which promotes extreme sex acts, abortion, and provides a clinic locator for teenagers to find their local abortion mill or Planned Parenthood to kill their children and tells them how they can do it without telling their parents. Friends, it is a moral wrong to vote for a party who makes it part of their platform to pr promote and expand the slaughter of innocent human beings. We need to restore moral, political, and spiritual clarity on this issue, and that is how we do it. So friends, what can we do practically? Well, we need to obey scripture's first and most important commandments. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, loving our neighbors is so serious to Jesus that what did he say? Whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. So when you love your neighbor, you're showing love for me. Let's go back to the parable of the Good Samaritan. In response to the question, what must I do to be saved? And who is my neighbor? Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, where a bleeding victim, after being ignored by religious leaders, was saved by someone who was his enemy. This Good Samaritan didn't stop to preach the gospel to the bleeding victim and say, uh, it's not my job to save bleeding victims. My job is the Great Commission. 
He understood that his obedience to Christ in the Great Commission ought to evidence itself in action. True faith evidenced itself in works. And so what did he do? He bandaged the man's wounds. He put him on his own donkey. He took him back to the inn. He nursed him back to health. And then he told the innkeeper, I'm gonna pay you for any other costs that accumulated in caring for this man while I was gone. Radical sacrifices of his time, his energy, and his money to love his neighbor. And in so doing, he saved his very life. We as Christians, friend, at the very minimum, have the same responsibility to our bleeding unborn neighbors as the Good Samaritan did to that bleeding victim on that day. And that is to adopt personal responsibility and sacrifice our time, our energy, and our money to save lives. Here's four things you can do to do that. I want you to take personal responsibility to get 10 people out to the polls. Yes, for presidential, but also for local and congressional. If we want to flip this state and truly accomplish come back California, then we need to get people who have a Christian worldview and who recognize those first and most important of all rights to utilize their political tools to protect those rights. I want you to go to Californians for Life, their website, Californians for Life, and you can download their California pro-life voter guide. I want you to use that voter guide and I want you now to commit to get 10 people to the polls with you to vote for life. Secondly, I want you to learn how to persuasively and graciously communicate your pro-life views. Did you know the abortion industry and the movement work very hard to indoctrinate the next generation into abortion ideology and how to defend it? Did you know one of the Black Lives Matter co-founders teamed up with the former president of Planned Parenthood, Cecile Richards, to launch a political action organization called Supermajority with the express intent of training out young women to be political abortion activists. The church needs to be as committed to equipping the next generation to defend life as the other side is to equipping the next generation to defend death. So if you want to equip yourself to defend the pro-life position, go to my website, sethgruber.com, sethgruber.com, sign up for my newsletter. It's easy and you will get free pro-life tools and resources. You can also subscribe to my podcast, Unaborted with Seth Gruber for a weekly pro-life show that will give you tools to defend life. Thirdly, I want you to sign up as a sidewalk counselor or a volunteer at a local pro-life ministry or a pro-life ministry at your church. Calvary Chapel Chino Hills has an excellent one. If your church does not have a pro-life ministry, I want you to book me to come speak at your church and do a training and we're gonna get a pro-life ministry launched at that church. Fourthly, you need to support pro-life organizations. Like the Good Samaritan, we need to put our money where our mouth is to save children. So if you wanna support pro-life organizations, just Google them, there's a ton. Support your local pro-life pregnancy center or you can support me to travel around the country and speak to young people. All right, friends, I wanna end with this. We are in a distinct place in human history right now. But friends, the battle we face is one that our spiritual forefathers have faced before. Many of you are familiar with the story of Oscar Schindler, right? Now, Oscar Schindler was a man, very wealthy German citizen and entrepreneur who was actually a member of the Nazi party. But you see, Oscar Schindler began to become horrified at the atrocities being committed by Hitler and the Nazi party against his Jewish brothers and sisters and image bearers. So what did Oscar Schindler do? Oscar Schindler began to exhaust his great net worth and wealth to buy Jews off of the Nazi death camp lists and employ them in his factory to hide them from the Nazis and save their lives. Did you know that because of Oscar Schindler's sacrifices, he saved over 1,000 human beings from the genocide of the Holocaust? That turned into generations of individuals whose lives were saved because of one man's personal sacrifices to save image bearers from a genocide. 
And if you've seen the film Schindler's List, you'll know that at the end of the film, he's standing surrounded by hundreds of individuals who owe him their very lives. And he begins to weep. And his friend comes up to him and he says, my, my brother, what is wrong? These people here owe you their lives. And Oscar Schindler, through tears down his face, says, I could have saved one more. And he looks at his fancy car and he says, my car, my car. One of the last things that he owned. He says, why did I keep my car? I could have sold that. I could have saved 10 more. And his friend says, no, no, these people here owe you their lives. And he looks at the gold pin on his jacket, which identifies him as a member of the Nazi party. And he says, my pin, why did I keep this? This is gold. I could have sold this. I could have saved three more, at least one more. I could have saved one more. And as the announcement comes that the war has ended, all that Oscar Schindler can do is weep that he didn't do more. Friends, the question that echoes throughout eternity to our time today is this, do we take our Holocaust in 2020 as seriously as Oscar Schindler took his? Because if we do, friends, if we truly do, then I need you to join me in hitting the beach. I will see you on the battlefield. Now go and give them heaven. Thank you. All right, so for you Californians, okay, share this episode with those in our state so we can equip our fellow Californians to fight for life. This is a propitious moment. Even if we don't flip this state red in November for life, we can get involved at the local and congressional level to fight for the state. If you're not in California, obviously this episode still equip you to defend life. So please share this with people that you know. And if you want to bring this type of content to your youth group, to your church, to your local faith-based high school, to an event or a conference that you're involved with, please reach out to me. We want to reach more people. We need to create a culture of life, and we need Christians and conservatives who hold pro-life positions to get more involved, right? As my friend Heidi St. John says, to get off the bench and get involved in shaping the culture for life. So if you want to get more information, if you want to get on my newsletter, see my speaking schedule, or learn more, go to sethgruber.com. That's S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in baby boy, E-R.com for more information. Subscribe to this podcast. Leave us a five-star rating and review. You can get this anywhere you listen to podcasts or subscribe on YouTube and watch the show every Monday. Thanks for tuning in and Godspeed.